and welcome back to the Wayfarer Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderwell. So good to have you on the journey with me today for our Wayfarer Weekend Podcast. We're going to take a little bit of extra time to, to continue our journey, the beginner's guide to the great story, and we're in part eight of ten. And by great story, we're talking about that great story in the Bible from Genesis one, where it's the beginning of all things, to the end of Revelation, where it is the end of all things, and then a new beginning. So I wanted to do this series specifically for people that maybe have no religious background, maybe you have never were brought up in a church, you, you've heard maybe about Jesus, you've heard about the Bible, but you really have no context and have no understanding of even the basics that anyone who maybe went to Sunday school at least has a few of the, the stories. And so if you're a beginner and you really don't know anything, I'm just trying to give you a good overview and give you some ideas of where you can engage for yourself. Before we get there, just a couple of housekeeping items. Our chapter day podcast is continues in the book of Psalms, which is like this anthology of ancient song lyrics. And we've been going through that. So we're about the 30th chapter of Psalms. There's 150 chapters. And actually, the, it's broken up into five sections. So we may take a little break between the sections uh, and do something a little different than come back to it. Haven't really decided. But join us Monday through Friday every morning. Uh, about a five-minute podcast. Uh, just take one chapter, and I read through it, and then kind of share my reflections. So you're welcome to join us on that. Remember, the text version uh, is always available at TomVanderwell.com. So basically, I write, and I uh, write the blog post uh, about the chapter a day, and then turned it into a podcast. So whether you like to read or whether you like to listen, both are available. As always, please feel free to share People a lot of times will say, hey, do you mind if I post this or forward this on Facebook? Or, hey, I've got a friend. Can I share this with them? Absolutely. Always happy when people do that. And no messages scheduled right now. Uh, getting ready for the new teaching year among our local gathering of Jesus followers. And so nothing is on the schedule, but I expect that there will be in the coming weeks. So at TomBanderwell.com, you can always find the schedule. There's a upcoming messages is where I kind of put when I'm speaking where, and then if there is an audio or video of any of my messages, I try and post that on the messages page there at TomVanderwell.com. All right, the Beginner's Guide to the Great Story, Part 8. We're going to get into the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles right after this. So let's talk about the Gospels. And everyone, what does gospel mean? Gospels actually, it just means good news. That was uh, a Greek word, means good news. And don't we, don't we all want a little good news right now? <laughs> Couldn't we all do with a little good news? And so in the early days of the Jesus movement, that's kind of the way they approached it. It's like, hey, I got some good news. And the story of Jesus was good news for everyone. You want to, you know, you want to learn about eternal life. Do you want to understand what this is all about? Well, I've got some good news for you. And so that's what the gospel means. And there are four books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when, when I was a kid, I learned Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John hold my horse so I can get on. And that's how I memorized them as a kid. 
these four books are basically the Jesus story as told by four different people. Matthew, Mark, and John were all contemporaries of Jesus. In fact, Matthew and John were part of the 12 disciples. But you may not know this, Jesus actually had lots of followers. I mean, the the 12 disciples, later to become apostles, which by the way, the difference between that is disciple means like a learned follower. So while Jesus was on earth, the disciples were following him, learning from him, they were in training. After he died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, then he sent them to the world to proclaim this good news. And apostle just means somebody who is sent. So disciple is a follower, apostle someone who is sent. So the disciples became apostles. And that's the difference between those two. But Matthew and John were part of the 12 that Jesus chose to be his core disciples and then sent as apostles. John Mark, or whom we would know as Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark, traditionally is he was one of the larger group of followers. In fact, his mother was a follower, and in the Acts of the Apostles, which is kind of the history of the early Jesus movement in the first century, uh, John Mark's mother was a wealthy woman, and she actually had a large home, and so she hosted a lot of the Jesus followers in her home. And John Mark was probably a, like pretty young at the time that Jesus was around, but he was a follower of Jesus. And so he also was a eyewitness and, and provides a firsthand account. Uh, and then Luke is actually came later. He heard about Jesus as the Jesus movement began to, uh, to expand across the known world. And so Luke was a doctor. And he decided that he was going to thoroughly investigate all these things that he was hearing about this person, Jesus. So he did. He he became an investigator. He talked to the people that knew Jesus. Tradition holds that he got to know Mary, Jesus' mother, very, very well. And interviewed the other followers. And then based on that, he wrote not only the Jesus story, which is the Gospel of Luke... But Luke then also chronicled the Jesus movement in the Acts of the Apostles. So Luke and Acts are basically like, uh, you know, prequel and sequel. Uh, Luke, the Gospel of Luke tells the story of Jesus, and then the Acts of the Apostle tells what happened then. And so we've got these five books that make up the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in their style in their language, in their content. In fact, scholars call these three Gospels the synoptic Gospels. So there's synergy, there's similarity, so they're synoptic. And scholars get into which one was first and who borrowed from whom and all of these different things, and we're not going to get into all of that. But just know that they are very similar. Mark is the shortest one, only 16 chapters long. So if you're looking for a quick hit summary, Mark's the one to start because you could sit down and probably read it in one sitting, depending on how good of a reader you are. And then Matthew and Mark are very similar in their content and their language. 
Matthew then is longer. Matthew goes 28 chapters. And so you get more detail. Now, Luke is even longer, and it is the most thorough. There are stories in Luke's Jesus story, details that aren't in Matthew and Mark. And again, because Luke was an investigator, he got more of the story. He asked a lot of questions, and then he ended up sharing more of the story than the other two. John is the outlier because John is written completely differently. And John is really the most artistic, if I can put it that way. His language is beautiful and he puts together the Jesus story thematically rather than more chronologically from A to B. And we'll get into that here in just, in just a little bit. So remember the three words that we've talked about through the entire series here. I tell you to keep remembering these three words, metaphor, context, and mystery. So I'd like to continue to use those three words, context, metaphor, and mystery, as we think about the Jesus story and the Acts of the Apostles. First of all, let's talk about context. When you think about Jesus, there's all sorts of baggage that you get, right? I mean, we're in the 21st century. This was uh, over 2,000 years ago. And it happened in another part of the world. And it happened in the context of the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish, living in Judea, what we would now call Israel. And his ministry was largely confined within this area of Judea, and within the Jewish people themselves, within the context of the Jewish culture. Now, the Old Testament that we talked about from Genesis, then through Malachi, so we had the books of law, the books of history, the books of wisdom and poetry, and then the books of the prophets. Well, all of that provides a larger context of Jesus' life and ministry because it's really the backstory and foreshadowing of the great story. So if we're talking about the great story from Genesis to Revelation, the Jesus story is really the climactic event. But with any great epic story, you don't start with a climactic event, you build to the climactic event. And that's why the Old Testament story and all the history that comes before provides the context for who Jesus was, what he was teaching, and what he did in those three years of ministry before his death, resurrection, and ascension. So it's important really to keep that in context because as you read the Jesus story, if you're reading from a 21st century non-Jewish perspective, there's a whole lot of stuff you're going to miss. Now, there's stuff you're going to get but there's a larger context that's going to be lost on you. And so it's helpful just to keep be mindful of that. Now, you may not understand it all the first time that you read through this, the Jesus story, but you at least want to understand that there are some things that are very specific to the time and place and culture in which Jesus lived and ministered, Right. We also need to understand that the prophetic texts that we talked about in part seven, by the way, the books of the prophets and some of the prophetic texts, 
they presented a Messiah. And so Messiah really means like a savior, someone who's going to come and deliver everyone. In the book of Exodus that we went through in our chapter day journey here a couple of months ago, Moses became the deliverer. He delivered the Hebrew people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And then he led them through the wilderness to the promised land. In the larger story, Jesus is the Messiah. So we have Adam and Eve who sin in the garden. They're thrown out. And God says, first prophecy was, hey, I'm going to snake. I'm going to send the seed of the woman and he's going to crush your head. So there's this idea that there's this Messiah, this savior, this person who's going to come and is going to make all of the difference. Well, the prophetic tests presented the Messiah really in very contrasting ways. There was the suffering servant that we read about in the last part in Isaiah 53, and we also talked about Psalm 22. But then there's also this victorious judge who comes and rights all the wrongs and brings justice uh, to the unjust and kind of wipes up and makes everything better. Now, I find that humanity is always looking for ways to skip past the suffering part and get right to the ideal. So when Jesus came, everyone was looking for a Messiah. And by the way, there were a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah. Jesus was just one of many. But when they were looking for the Messiah, they were looking for, and even the Jewish teachers were talking about the Messiah who was going to come, was going to destroy the Romans who were occupying force in their land at that time. But what did we talk about in part three? of our series. We talked about the meta themes. And as you walk through the great story, there is this repetitive theme. It goes like this, creation, fall, redemption, deliverance, then wilderness, then promised land, life, crucifixion, resurrection, or life, death, new life, beginning and new beginning. There is this theme that is repetitive. And here's the thing, we don't get to the redemption without the fall. We don't get to the promised land without walking through the wilderness. We don't get to the resurrection without the crucifixion. There is no new life unless something dies. And so in the prophetic texts, we have this conquering judge, making everything right, but we also have this suffering servant. And so Jesus came and said, look, I came to die and to conquer the grave. And even he talked about that, the day of the Lord. He, that's the, the phrase he would use, the day of the Lord is coming. And Jesus even said in the gospel of Matthew, I, I don't even know when this day is. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. Jesus came first as the suffering servant, and someday he said, I'm going to come back, and at the end of all things, we're going to make, make everything right. So that all comes out of the context of the Old Testament. Now, here's another thing that you need to keep in mind as you read the Jesus story, and that is the political climate of the day. At this point in time, it's really complicated in the area where Jesus lived and had his ministry. The Roman Empire was in charge. The Roman Empire 
would really reach the height of its power and its scope in the hundred years or so after Jesus' life. But they were in charge. And the Roman Empire was really successful for hundreds of years in ruling the Western world because of a couple of things. There had been lots of empires. There'd been the Babylonian Empire, the Mede-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great, and then that, the, there are lots of empires. But the Romans were especially successful because of a couple of things. Number one, they didn't supplant local authorities and local religions. They didn't come in and say, well, now we've taken you over, so you, you basically, your rulers are all dead, and you have to now worship all of our gods and learn all of our ways. Nope, Rome would go into an area and they would take it over militarily and then they'd say, hey, look, we're going to leave an occupying force behind. Now here's the deal. You can keep your religions. I mean, we'll have ours too and you're welcome to worship them, but you can keep your own local religion and you can keep your own local king. Uh, Now he's going to answer to us and we're the ultimate authority. But they understood that the local government and the local authorities understood the culture, understood the people, and could help rule it for Rome. And as long as the tax money was collected and kept flowing to Rome, the Romans were happy. So in the area where Jesus lived, you've actually got three pillars of power. You've got the Roman Empire. And there was a local governor, Pontius Pilate, and uh, he comes into the story at the end. So, but he was the local Roman governor. And you've got these Roman centurions and these Roman soldiers that are everywhere. Now, one of the other things that is important to understand is that in many places in the empire, people actually welcomed the Romans. Because as long as the Romans were around, there was law and order. And sometimes the local king or the local tyrant... <laughs> was not such a good person. And in, in some cases, the Roman Empire came in and actually the people appreciated them because they ruled with law and order, whereas maybe the local officials that were overthrown were leading by tyranny and fear and violence, all of those things. So you've got the Roman Empire and you've got the Roman army occupying everything. They are in charge. Then the local king in this area was known as Herod. And then Herod the Great had died, and then his children had taken over and basically split the kingdom. But the Herodians were sort of the local authorities and were still on the throne, but they basically were under Roman rule. But now you're in the land of Judea, and Judaism is the religion of the people. And the Jewish people take their religion very, very seriously. And so the temple in Jerusalem, the religious leaders had incredible sway over the people. And they had lots of power because basically they controlled the people through religion. And when the religious rulers said this, the people, that's what they did. And so you've got these three pillars of power, and now Jesus comes in during this period of time. So when Jesus was tried and executed, 
he was arrested by the temple leaders who tried him and then sent him to Pilate because they couldn't execute anyone under Roman rule. And the Roman governor had to do it. That's why they sent him to Pilate. But Pilate realized that this is a powder keg political situation because you've got this so-called Messiah who's creating riots and yeah, but he doesn't seem to have done anything wrong. And the Jewish leaders want him dead, but I'm not sure about that. So guess what? I'm going to send him to Herod, the local ruler. Let Herod, <laughs> let Herod make the call because uh, that would be politically expedient. But Herod, you know, punts it back to to Pilate says, no, 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 no. You're the one who's in charge. You got to make the decision. And so you've got these three pillars of power and Jesus is in the middle of all of them. So within Jesus' followers, you've got one of the 12s known as Simon the Zealot. Well, the Zealots were a political terrorist group. They were believing and advocating that the only way to get rid of the Romans was through violence. So we need to basically take them out. We need to have a violent uprising. We need to assassinate Roman officials. We need to <laughs> create an army and we need to terrorize the Romans until they want to leave. So Jesus had one of these zealots uh, among his 12. Then you had people who were actually got really rich working for Rome. Matthew, the tax collector, was one of those. See, the way that the tax collection worked is you had an area that you was your taxed, basically, area. And you had to, first of all, collect taxes to make sure that Rome got its cut. But then the way the Romans worked is, look, you can collect as many taxes as you want. As long as we get our cut, we're happy. The rest is up to you. So what tax collectors would do is they would collect what Rome wants, and then they would collect as much as they possibly could, and they got to keep that. They could line their own pockets. And so tax collectors were often seen as Roman collaborators and were seen as those who were actually feeding Rome and doing Rome's bidding. So, so within Jesus' 12 disciples, you've got this political terrorist patriot, and you've got this Roman collaborator. Talk about an interesting mix of people. But this was the climate in which Jesus lived. And then you've got all sorts of racial discord. So when you talk about the people that Samaritans, like this, the parable of the good Samaritan, or Jesus went and talked to a Samaritan woman at the well. Well, the Samaritans were basically Jewish half-breeds. They were Jewish people who had married into another culture and so they had this sort of mixed culture, and they didn't believe lock, stock, and barrel what the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem believed. They believed that they could worship God uh, on their holy mountain, and that would just be fine. The Jews considered them to be racially inferior, and the Jews considered them to be heretical. And so they were hated and despised. And that's why when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, hey, well, the good Jewish person passed by the guy bleeding on the street, and then the law, the Pharisee, the good religious Jew passed by and didn't do anything. But then this half-breed, heretical Samaritan, who's racially inferior, comes along, binds up the guy's wounds, takes him to a hotel, pays for his lodging, and says, hey, on my way back, I'll check in and make sure that you're okay. So who's, his, who's the neighbor, Jesus said. And he was making a very strong cultural, religious 
and racial point that the children of God are those who love God and love others, not the ones who just keep every stinking little religious rule. Because if you keep the religious rule, but you don't love somebody that needs help, that you don't take care of the suffering, you don't take care of the poor, then that's, that's not the way it works. So there's all of these things in this political climate that Jesus lived in, that as you read the stories and the parables, you have to be aware of who the power brokers are and what Jesus is saying in context to that day. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't get a lot out of it without understanding everything, because Jesus' teaching is powerful no matter the context, but having an understanding of the context certainly helps make it more rich and deep. So that's context. Metaphor, one of the reasons that metaphor is a key word as we talk about the great story is because Jesus spoke in metaphor. He told stories. A lot of the stories he told, the parables. And there is a meaning in the parable. He would tell a story and there's a point to the story. It's like Aesop's fables and this tortoise and the hare. What, there's a there's a moral to the story. There's an understanding. Jesus told parables that had spiritual meaning. It had a spiritual message that it was trying to get to. But the parable itself was a metaphor. John's gospel, because we talked about how John was different and he kind of talked thematically. John's entire gospel is written thematically based on metaphors Jesus used to describe himself. Jesus goes, sits by a well, speaks to a Samaritan woman, which was absolutely forbidden, especially for a good Jewish man like him. Number one, you would not speak to a woman. Number two, you would not speak to a Samaritan woman. Absolutely the wrong thing to do. It was socially unacceptable, religiously unacceptable. And he asked this woman for a drink. And then he says, I am living water. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread and a few uh, fish. And then what does he say in the next chapter? I am the bread of life. Jesus heals a blind man. And then in the next thing you know, he's talking about being the light of the world. He goes to raise Lazarus, his friend from the dead. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. So all of these metaphors, I am living water, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the light of the world, I am resurrection of life. John put together his Jesus story where he combined the metaphor with a miracle that Jesus did. Beautiful. And John even began his his Jesus story with, in the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. And so that brings us to the mystery. And some of the things that are mysterious in the Jesus story is that here Jesus is the Messiah, God's son, come in the climactic event of the great story. But he specifically did not do what would make him successful from a political perspective, from a social perspective, from, 
from the perspective that we think of as fame and fortune and success and power, yeah, he didn't do any of those things. He hung out with the poor in rural areas. He hung out with sick people. He hung out with sinful people. He went to parties that were not the right parties for him to go to if he wanted to be successful in the Jewish power system. He talked to Samaritan women. He did all, all of these things were not going to make him popular with the people who could put him in power. He didn't do that. In fact, he tweaked the religious authorities at every opportunity. These are the guys that, hey, if you want to lead the Jewish people, if you want to be the Messiah, these are the guys that should recognize you and, should, and, and can make that happen for you. And instead of pandering to them, he actually provoked them. Because he's like, look, your religion is not what God's about. Your legalism is not what God's about. Yeah, you, you know, all of these things that you're doing to hold on to power and to line your pockets and to make sure that you and your families are in control, yeah, that's not God's way. And the fact that you're doing it in the first place means that you don't get God at all. So what Jesus said is, I'm going to go to the people who really understand God. And who are those people? Those are sick people who understand the gratitude of getting well. The hungry people who understand what it means to be fed. I'm going to go to those who have nothing because they're the ones who are empty and I can fill them with the right stuff. You're so full of the wrong stuff, you religious people, that you've got no room for the things of God. That's a mystery. It's beautiful, isn't it? So he drove crowds away. It, one of my favorite texts is John, the sixth chapter. He was so popular. He had thousands of people following him. He could have, at that point, just could have made himself. They would have carried him to Jerusalem and made him king. Instead, he ticks them off and he drives them away. The reality was he didn't want everyone following him. He told people, no, you don't want to follow me. <laughs> you, know, you know what? Nope, you can't follow me because you don't get it. So don't even bother. And here's part of the greatest mystery of all. Jesus did the things that would get himself executed. The more I read through the Jesus stories, all of them, and I put together all of the things that happened in Jesus' life, you begin to realize that he did exactly the things that would get him crucified. Because he came to suffer. And he knew it. He even predicted it. He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go. I'm going to be arrested. And I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. And I'm going to be crucified. And then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And here's where the, probably the biggest mystery of all takes place. And that is that Jesus claimed to be God. Interesting, just this week, I saw in the headlines that, uh, you know, a big chunk, whatever the percentage was, of people who say that they are Christians don't believe that Jesus was actually God. 
they embrace him as a good teacher, but not as God, which is fascinating because if you really read the Jesus story, and I encourage that you do, Jesus made it very clear that he was God. He made it very clear that he came to die and he came to die and be risen from the dead. And if that is true, then I have to, I believe that I've got to deal with that. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, makes the case that, look, the fact that Jesus claimed to be God, the fact that he said he was God's son, (laughs) that means that I have basically three options. One, he knew he wasn't God's son and claimed to be, which makes him a liar. And if he was a liar, then everything that he taught was based on a lie. And why would I follow that? Or he, was, he wasn't God, but in saying that he was God, he's crazy. He's a lunatic. And I mean, if I told you, oh yes, I'm God and I've come as the Messiah. I mean, David Koresh, Jim Jones, think of those who have done, and you kind of go, well, that's crazy. So if Jesus said he was God and he wasn't, does that make him insane? Does that make him crazy? Either he wasn't and he didn't know it, he wasn't and he did know it, which make him a liar, or C.S. Lewis argues he was exactly who he said he was. And if that's true, then I have to deal with that as well. So in John the 8th chapter, it's fascinating. There's, so here's where I want to put this all together as we think about the Old Testament, the New Testament, the backstory, this story, and the great story. So back in the story of the Exodus, so now we're going way back to the second book, Genesis and Exodus. And the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt, and God reveals himself to Moses and says, Moses, you're going to be the deliverer of my people. He appears to Moses in a burning bush. Now at this point, remember, there's no established, real established religion at this point. The whole idea of of Jewishness, there's no law, there was no rules, there was no Ten Commandments. There was just this loose sort of understanding between Moses' ancestors and the God known as Yahweh. So when Moses sees the burning bush and says, who are you? The response out of the burning bush was, I am that I am. In other words, the word is Yahweh, which was translated, I am. I just, I am. As Moses delivers the Ten Commandments and as Moses begins to establish the system by which the Hebrew people were going to worship God, one of the things that was established at that point is that the name of God, Yahweh, was never to be uttered. It was holy. It was considered holy. And it was so holy that you didn't say the name of God. So even in the Old Testament texts, when Yahweh was written, if you spoke it, you would substitute a generic name, Lord, (laughs) instead of saying Yahweh. They always made sure that they never used that name because it was so holy that to speak it would be 
would be profaning the name of God. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is having an argument with these religious power brokers, the the priests of his day that were running the temple and running uh, the re- the religion, and he, they are saying that uh, you know they're true children of Abraham because they follow the law and so on and so forth. So Abraham is the father of the Jewish people and the Hebrew people. So you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the twelve tribes of Jacob, and then Moses comes later. So we've got the Jewish people of Jesus' day saying, we are children of Abraham because we follow what, you know, Abraham and the laws of Moses. And Jesus looks at these religious leaders and says, yeah, you know what? Abraham was so excited to see my day come. He was so excited. (laughs) And they're like going, what? Wait a minute. What are you talking about? Abraham's thousands of years ago. How could he be excited to see your day come? You weren't alive back then. And Jesus responds, before Abraham was, I am. And at that moment, Jesus uttered the holy name of God. And in saying, before Abraham was, Yahweh, he was literally saying, I am Yahweh. I am that voice from the burning bush. I have existed since the beginning of time. And if you read it in John 8, the very first, the very next verse, the very first thing they do is they pick up rocks to stone him, to kill him, to execute him for uttering the name. But in doing that, Jesus was saying, I am the God of Abraham. I am the one that was that burning bush. I am the creator. I am God. So what do we do with that? Interesting. So where do you start? Where do you start? I would encourage you if you, um, you know, any of the gospels are easy reads and good reads. Again, if you want to just kind of quick hit and, and read the the top line, the Gospel of Mark is a good way to go. It's very quick. It's the shortest of three. I would say that I love the book of John and the, the Jesus story in John, again, because it's so beautiful and uh, literary, uh, the most literary of the four. But I also love Luke because he adds so many little details and stories that the others don't. So it's up to you. I just encourage you to engage anywhere. Any one of them would be great. And then we get to the Acts of the Apostles. And again, Acts of the Apostles picks up at Jesus' ascension. That's where it starts. And then it takes up the story through really the first several decades of the Jesus movement. And then it ends rather abruptly. Either Luke's story ended (laughs) or uh, the writing ended before the story Uh, before he could kind of bring it to a full conclusion. And it's the Acts of the Apostles that also tells the story about how the enemy of God, Saul of Tarsus, who was imprisoning Christians and throwing them in jail and having them executed, how he became the most influential follower of Jesus and perhaps 
the one who uh, was most responsible for turning the Roman world upside down with the gospel of Christ and becoming Paul, the St. Paul. Remember that I blogged through all of these books, and if you want to just kind of go through and read what I had to say about each of the chapters, you're welcome to do that at TomVanderWill.com. Just go to the chapter day index and uh, look it up there. We've got two parts left. Part nine is going to be the epistles or the letters of uh, the Jesus followers. And then our last part, part 10, is one a lot of people is going to be interested in. That's going to be the book of Revelation and the apocalypse and the end times. Again, feel free to share. Join us on our chapter day journey each weekday. And before we leave, let me bless you with this. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rains fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Have a great week, everybody.